0: Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is healthcare, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Been kind of a quiet week, nothing big going on really. Please feel free to check out my reading of The String of Pearls, the novel on which the musical Sweeney Todd is based. It's on my YouTube, link in the show notes. Been taking it slow this month because I've had some other stuff going on, but I'm hoping to pick it back up at regular pace soon. Also putting the finishing touches on Black Horse Road and other stories coming soon. Some fun stuff going on behind the scenes. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and let's get on with the story. As days passed on, I became considerably reconciled to Bartleby. His steadiness, his freedom from all dissipation, his incessant industry, except when he chose to throw himself into a standing reverie behind his screen, his great stillness, his unalterableness of demeanor under all circumstances made him a valuable acquisition. One prime thing was this. He was always there. First in the morning, continually through the day, and the last at night. I had a singular confidence in his honesty. I felt my most precious papers perfectly safe in his hands. Sometimes, to be sure, I could not, for the very soul of me, avoid falling into sudden spasmodic passions with him, for it was exceeding difficult to bear in mind all the time those strange peculiarities, privileges, and unheard-of exemptions forming the tacit stipulations on Bartleby's part under which he remained in my office.' Now and then, in the eagerness of dispatching pressing business, I would inadvertently summon Bartleby in a short, rapid tone to put his finger, say, on the incipient tie of a bit of red tape with which I was about compressing some papers. Of course, from behind the screen, the usual answer, I prefer not to, was sure to come. And then, how could a human creature with the common infirmities of our nature refrain from bitterly exclaiming upon such perverseness, such unreasonableness? However, every added repulse of this sort which I received only tended to lessen the probability of my repeating the inadvertence. Here it must be said that, according to the custom of most legal gentlemen occupying chambers in densely populated law buildings, there were several keys to my door. One was kept by a woman residing in the attic, which person weekly scrubbed and daily swept and dusted my apartments. Another was kept by turkey for convenience sake. The third I sometimes carried in my own pocket. The fourth I knew not who had. Now, one Sunday morning I happened to go to Trinity Church to hear a celebrated preacher, and finding myself rather early on the ground, I thought I would walk around to my chambers for a while. Luckily I had my key with me, but upon applying it to the lock, I found it resisted by something inserted from the inside. Quite surprised, I called out when to my consternation a key was turned from within, and thrusting his lean visage at me, and holding the door ajar, the apparition of Bartleby appeared in his shirt sleeves and otherwise in a strangely tattered dishabille, saying quietly that he was sorry, but he was deeply engaged just then and preferred not admitting me at present. In a brief word or two, he moreover added that perhaps i had better walk around the block two or three times, and by that time he would probably have concluded his affairs. Now, The utterly unsurmised appearance of Bartleby, tenanting my law chambers of a Sunday morning with his cadaverously gentlemanly nonchalance, yet withal firm and self-possessed, had such a strange effect upon me that incontinently I slunk away from my own door and did as desired, but not without sundry twinges of impotent rebellion against the mild effrontery of this unaccountable scrivener. Indeed, it was his wonderful mildness chiefly which not only disarmed me but unmanned me, as it were. For I consider that one, for the time, is a sort of unmanned when he tranquilly permits his hired clerk to dictate to him and order him away from his own premises. Furthermore, I was full of uneasiness as to what Bartleby could possibly be doing in my office in his shirt sleeves and in an otherwise dismantled condition of a Sunday morning. Was anything amiss going on? Nay, that was out of the question. It was not to be thought of for a moment that Bartleby was an immoral person. But what could he be doing there? Copying? Nay, again, whatever might be his eccentricities, Bartleby was an eminently decorous person. He would be the last man to sit down to his desk in any state approaching to nudity. Besides, it was Sunday, and there was something about Bartleby that forbade the supposition that he would, by any secular occupation, violate the proprieties of the day. Nevertheless, my mind was not pacified, and full of a restless curiosity, at last I returned to the door. Without hindrance, I inserted my key, opened it, and entered. Bartleby was not to be seen. I looked round anxiously, peeped behind his screen, but it was very plain that he was gone. Upon more closely examining the place, I surmised that for an indefinite period Bartleby must have ate, dressed, and slept in my office, and that too without plate, mirror, or bed. The cushioned seat of a rickety old sofa in one corner bore the faint impress of a lean, reclining form. Rolled away under his desk, I found a blanket under the empty grate, a blacking box and brush, on a chair, a tin basin, with soap and ragged towel, in a newspaper, a few crumbs of ginger nuts and a morsel of cheese. Yes, thought I, it is evident enough that Bartleby had been making his home here, keeping Bachelor's Hall all by himself. Immediately then the thought came sweeping across me. What miserable friendlessness and loneliness are here revealed? His poverty is great, but his solitude, how horrible! Think of it. Of a Sunday, Wall Street is deserted as Petra, and every night of every day it is an emptiness. This building, too, which of weekdays hums with industry and life, at nightfall echoes with sheer vacancy, and all through Sunday is forlorn. And here, Bartleby makes his home, sole spectator of a solitude which he has seen all populous, a sort of innocent and transformed Marius brooding among the ruins of Carthage. For the first time in my life, a feeling of overpowering, stinging melancholy seized me. Before, I had never experienced aught but a not unpleasant sadness. The bond of a common humanity now drew me irresistibly to gloom, a fraternal melancholy, for both I and Bartleby were sons of Adam. I remembered the bright silks and sparkling faces I had seen that day in gala trim, swan-like, sailing down the Mississippi or Broadway, and I contrasted them with the pallid copyist and thought to myself, Ah! Happiness courts the light, so we deem that the world is gay. But misery hides aloof, so we deem that misery there is none. These sad fancyings, chimeras doubtless of a sick and silly brain, led on to other and more special thoughts concerning the eccentricities of Bartleby. Presentiments of strange discoveries hovered round me. The scrivener's pale form appeared to me laid out among uncaring strangers in its shivering, winding sheet. Suddenly, I was attracted by Bartleby's closed desk, the key in open sight left in the lock. I mean no mischief. Seek the gratification of no heartless curiosity, thought I. Besides, the desk is mine, and its contents too, so I will make bold to look within. Everything was methodically arranged, the papers smoothly placed. The pigeonholes were deep, and removing the files of documents, I groped into their recesses. Presently, I felt something there and dragged it out. "'It was an old bandana handkerchief, heavy and knotted. "'I opened it and saw it was a savings bank. "'I now recalled all the quiet mysteries which I had noted in the man. "'I remembered that he never spoke but to answer, "'that though at intervals he had considerable time to himself, "'yet I had never seen him reading. "'No, not even a newspaper. "'That for long periods he would stand looking out at his pale window "'behind the screen upon the dead brick wall.' I was quite sure he never visited any refectory or eating house, while his pale face clearly indicated that he never drank beer, like turkey, or tea and coffee even, like other men, that he never went anywhere in particular that I can learn, never went out for a walk, unless indeed that was the case at present, that he had declined telling who he was or whence he came or whether he had any relatives in the world, that though so thin and pale, he never complained of ill health. And more than all, I remembered a certain unconscious air of pallid—how shall I call it—of pallid haughtiness, say, or rather an austere reserve about him which had positively awed me into my tame compliance with his eccentricities when I had feared to ask him to do the slightest incidental thing for me, even though I might know from his long-continued motionlessness that behind his screen he must be standing in one of those dead-wall reveries of his. Revolving all these things, and coupling them with the recently discovered fact that he made my office his constant abiding place and home, and not forgetful of his morbid moodiness revolving all these things, a prudential feeling began to steal over me. My first emotions had been those of pure melancholy and sincerest pity, but just in proportion as the forlornness of Bartleby grew and grew to my imagination, did that same melancholy merge into fear, that pity into repulsion. So true it is, and so terrible too, that up to a certain point the thought or sight of misery enlists our best affections, but in certain special cases beyond that point it does not. They err who would assert that invariably this is owing to the inherent selfishness of the human heart. It rather proceeds from a certain hopelessness of remedying excessive and organic ill. To a sensitive being pity is not seldom pain, and when at last it is perceived that such pity cannot lead to effectual succor, common sense bids the soul rid of it. What I saw that morning persuaded me that the Scrivener was the victim of innate and incurable disorder. I might give alms to his body, but his body did not pain him. It was his soul that suffered, and his soul I could not reach. I did not accomplish the purpose of going to Trinity Church that morning, Somehow the things I had seen disqualified me for the time from church-going. I walked homeward, thinking what I would do with Bartleby. Finally, I resolved upon this. I would put certain calm questions to him the next morning, touching his history, etc., and if he declined to answer them openly and unreservedly, and I supposed he would prefer not, then to give him a twenty-dollar bill over and above whatever I might owe him and tell him his services were no longer required— but that if in any other way I could assist him I would be happy to do so, especially if he desired to return to his native place, wherever that might be, I would willingly help to defray the expenses. Moreover, if, after reaching home, he found himself at any time in want of aid, a letter from him would be sure of a reply. The next morning came. Bartleby, said I, gently calling to him behind his screen. No reply. Bartleby, said I, in a still gentler tone, Come here. I am not going to ask you to do anything you would prefer not to do. I simply wish to speak to you. Upon this, he noiselessly slid into view. Will you tell me, Bartleby, where you were born? I would prefer not to. Will you tell me anything about yourself? I would prefer not to. But what reasonable objection can you have to speak to me? I feel friendly towards you. He did not look at me while I spoke but kept his glance fixed upon my bust of Cicero, which, as I then sat, was directly behind me, some six inches above my head. "'What is your answer, Bartleby?' said I, after waiting a considerable time for a reply, during which his countenance remained immovable, only there was the faintest conceivable tremor of the white attenuated mouth. "'At present I prefer to give no answer,' he said, and retired into his hermitage. "'It was... Rather weak in me, I confess, but his manner on this occasion nettled me. Not only did there seem to lurk in it a certain calm disdain, but his perverseness seemed ungrateful, considering the undeniable good usage and indulgence he had received from me. Again I sat ruminating what I should do. Mortified as I was at his behavior, and resolved as I had been to dismiss him when I entered my offices, nevertheless I strangely felt something superstitious knocking at my heart, and forbidding me to carry out my purpose, and denouncing me for a villain if I dared to breathe one bitter word against this forlornest of mankind. At last, familiarly, drawing my chair behind his screen, I sat down and said, Bartleby, never mind then about revealing your history, but let me entreat you, as a friend, to comply as far as may be with the usages of this office. Say now you will help to examine papers tomorrow or next day, In short, say now that in a day or two you will begin to be a little reasonable. Say so, Bartleby. At present, I would prefer not to be a little reasonable, was his mildly cadaverous reply. Just then the folding doors opened and Nippers approached. He seemed suffering from an unusually bad night's rest, induced by severer indigestion than common. He overheard those final words of Bartleby. "'Prefer not, eh?' gritted Nippers. "'I'd prefer him, if I were you, sir,' addressing me. "'I'd prefer him. "'I'd give him preferences, the stubborn mule. "'What is it, sir, pray, that he prefers not to do now?' "'Bartleby moved, not a limb. "'Mr. Nippers,' said I, "'I'd prefer that you would withdraw for the present. "'Somehow of late I had gotten into the way "'of involuntarily using the word prefer "'upon all sorts of not exactly suitable occasions.' and I trembled to think that my contact with the Scrivener had already and seriously affected me in a mental way. And what further and deeper aberration might it not yet produce? This apprehension had not been without efficacy in determining me to summary means. As Nippers, looking very sour and sulky, was departing, Turkey blandly and deferentially approached, "'With submission, sir,' said he. "'Yesterday I was thinking about Bartleby here, "'and I think that if he would but prefer to take a quart of good ale every day, "'it would do much towards mending him "'and enabling him to assist in examining his papers.' "'So you have got the word, too,' said I, slightly excited. "'With submission what word, sir?' asked Turkey, "'respectfully crowding himself into the contracted space behind the screen, "'and by so doing making me jostle the Scrivener. "'What word, sir?' "'I would prefer to be left alone here.' said Bartleby, as if offended at being mobbed in his privacy. That's the word, Turkey, said I. That's it. Oh, prefer. Oh, yes, queer word. I never use it myself. But, sir, as I was saying, if he would but prefer— Turkey, interrupted I, you will please withdraw. Oh, certainly, sir, if you prefer that I should. As he opened the folding door to retire, Nippers at his desk caught a glimpse of me and asked whether I would prefer to have a certain paper copied on blue paper or white. He did not, in the least, roguishly accent the word prefer. It was plain that it involuntarily rolled from his tongue. I thought to myself, surely I must get rid of a demented man who already has in some degree turned the tongues, if not the heads of myself and clerks, but I thought it prudent not to break the dismission at once. The next day I noticed that Bartleby did nothing but stand at his window in his dead wall reverie. Upon asking him why he did not write, he said that he had decided upon doing no more writing. "'What? How now? What next?' exclaimed I. "'Do no more writing.' "'No more.' "'And what is the reason?' "'Do you not see the reason for yourself?' he indifferently replied. I looked steadfastly at him and perceived that his eyes looked dull and glazed. Instantly it occurred to me that his unexampled diligence in copying by his dim window for the first few weeks of his stay with me might have temporarily impaired his vision.' I was touched. I said something in condolence with him. I hinted that, of course, he did wisely in abstaining from writing for a while, and urged him to embrace that opportunity of taking wholesome exercise in the open air. This, however, he did not do. A few days after this, my other clerks being absent and being in a great hurry to dispatch certain letters by mail, I thought that, having nothing else earthly to do, Bartleby would surely be less inflexible than usual and carry these letters to the post office. But, he blankly declined. So, much to my inconvenience, I went myself. Still added days went by. Whether Bartleby's eyes improved or not, I could not say. To all appearance, I thought they did, but when I asked him if they did, he vouchsafed no answer. At all events, he would do no copying. At last, in reply to my urgings, he informed me that he had permanently given up copying. "'What?' exclaimed I. "'Suppose your eyes should get entirely well, better than ever before. "'Would you not copy, then?' "'I have given up copying,' he answered, and slid aside. "'He remained as ever a fixture in my chamber. "'Nay, if that were possible, he became still more of a fixture than before. "'What was to be done? "'He would do nothing in the office. "'Why should he stay there? "'In plain fact, he had now become a millstone to me, "'not only useless as a necklace, but afflictive to bear.' yet I was sorry for him. I speak less than truth when I say that, on his own account, he occasioned me uneasiness. If he would but have named a single relative or friend, I would instantly have written and urged their taking the poor fellow away to some convenient retreat. But he seemed alone, absolutely alone in the universe. A bit of wreck in the mid-Atlantic. At length, necessities connected with my business tyrannized over all other considerations. Decently as I could, I told Bartleby that in six days' time he must unconditionally leave the office. I warned him to take measures in the interval for procuring some other abode. I offered to assist him in this endeavor if he himself would but take the first step towards a removal. And when you finally quit me, Bartleby, added I, I shall see that you go not away entirely unprovided. Six days from this hour, remembered. At the expiration of that period, I peeped behind the screen, and lo, Bartleby was there. I buttoned up my coat, balanced myself, advanced slowly towards him, touched his shoulder, and said, "'The time has come. You must quit this place. I am sorry for you. Here is money, but you must go.' "'I would prefer not,' he replied with his back still towards me. "'You must.' He remained silent. Now, I had an unbounded confidence in this man's common honesty— "'He had frequently restored to me sixpences and shillings carelessly dropped upon the floor, "'for I am apt to be very reckless in such shirt-button affairs. "'The proceeding, then, which followed, will not be deemed extraordinary. Bartleby said I, "'I owe you twelve dollars on account. "'Here are thirty-two. "'The odd twenty are yours. "'Will you take it?' "'And I handed the bills toward him. "'But he made no motion. "'I will leave them here, then, "'putting them under a weight on the table.' Then, taking my hat and cane and going to the door, I tranquilly turned and added, After you have removed your things from these offices, Bartleby, you will, of course, lock the door, since everyone is now gone for the day but you, and if you please, slip your key underneath the mat so that I may have it in the morning. I shall not see you again, so good-bye to you. If hereafter, in your new place of abode, I can be of any service to you, do not fail to advise me by letter. Good-bye, Bartleby, and fare you well. But he answered not a word. Like the last column of some ruined temple, he remained standing mute and solitary in the middle of the otherwise deserted room. As I walked home in a pensive mood, my vanity got the better of my pity. I could not but highly plume myself on my masterly management in getting rid of Bartleby. Masterly, I call it, and such it must appear to any dispassionate thinker. The beauty of my procedure seemed to consist in its perfect quietness. There was no vulgar bullying, no bravado of any sort, no choleric hectoring and striding to and fro across the apartment, jerking out vehement commands for Bartleby to bundle himself off with his beggarly traps. Nothing of the kind. Without loudly bidding Bartleby depart, as an inferior genius might have done, I assumed the ground that depart he must, and upon that assumption built all I had to say. The more I thought over my procedure, the more I was charmed with it. Nevertheless, next morning, upon awakening, I had my doubts. I had somehow slept off the fumes of vanity. One of the coolest and wisest hours a man has is just after he wakes in the morning. My procedure seemed as sagacious as ever, but only in theory. How it would prove in practice, there was the rub. It was truly a beautiful thought to have assumed Bartleby's departure, but, after all, that assumption was simply my own and none of Bartleby's. The great point was not whether I had assumed that he would quit me, but whether he would prefer to do so. He was more a man of preferences than assumptions. After breakfast, I walked downtown, arguing the probabilities pro and con. One moment, I thought it would prove a miserable failure, and Bartleby would be found all alive at my office as usual. The next moment, it seemed certain that I should see his chair empty, and so I kept veering about. At the corner of Broadway and Canal Street... I saw quite an excited group of people standing in earnest conversation. I'll take odds he doesn't, said a voice as I passed. Doesn't go? Done, said I. Put up your money. I was instinctively putting my hand in my pocket to produce my own when I remembered that this was an election day. The words I had overheard bore no reference to Bartleby, but to the success or non-success of some candidate for the mayoralty. In my intent frame of mind, I had, as it were, imagined that all Broadway shared in my excitement and were debating the same question with me. I passed on, very thankful that the uproar of the street screened my momentary absent-mindedness. As I had intended, I was earlier than usual at my office door. I stood listening for a moment. All was still. He must be gone. I tried the knob. The door was locked. Yes, my procedure had worked to a charm— He indeed must be vanished. Yet a certain melancholy mixed with this. I was almost sorry for my brilliant success. I was fumbling under the doormat for the key which Bartleby was to have left there for me, when accidentally my knee knocked against a panel, producing a summoning sound, and in response a voice came to me from within. Not yet. I am occupied. It was Bartleby. And that's the end of part two. We'll be coming back to the dramatic conclusion next week. Hello to JR, new Patreon subscriber. I'm glad to have you on board. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Andreas Anderson, Elisa Maya, and Joe Escott, thank you for your support as well. Please go and get vaccinated. It's for the good of everyone and makes you a beneficial member of society. If you see a bigot out and about doing a mischief, play Yakety Sacks at top volume right behind him. It's good fun all the way around. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.